The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, I'm Tim Borum, and welcome to another edition of Health Kick. Today we're on a theme of drug repurposing to tackle rare and difficult disorders, uh, which is an increasingly common strategy in uh, biotech land these days. Uh, in the case of Invex Therapeutics, it's about using an old diabetes drug to treat conditions uh, stemming from abnormally high pressure on the brain. Now, to tell me more, I've got with me Invex founder and CEO, Professor Alexandra Sinclair, and the company's chairman, Dr. Jason Loveridge. So, uh, well, welcome both. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Now, Invex is a young company. It was uh, only formed in March this year and listed on the ASX in early July, raising about $12 million in the process. Uh, Invex has identified several potential reformulations of the drug in question, which is called Exanatide. And uh, just out of interest, uh, Exanatide is derived from the saliva of a venomous lizard called a gila monster. So uh, there we go. Uh, The company is tackling several potential disease treatments, but it's most advanced with its trials for idiopathic intracranial hypertension, uh, which can cause disabling headaches and, and even uh, loss of uh, vision. So, Alex, um, just uh, starting with, with y- yourself, um, what are the benefits of drug reformulation uh, vis-a-vis uh, starting from scratch? So the reason that we're thinking about reformulating a drug is it enables us to move a drug much more rapidly through to the patient group and through to licensing. So, for example, we're looking at moving this drug through exenatide for the treatment of idiopathic intracranial hypertension. One of the other major important advantages is that we have orphan drug indication for this condition, which means that we get enhanced regulatory support as we move through the processes of talking with the European Medicines Agency and the FDA. And the other advantage of having the orphan drug designation is that because this is a rarer disease, it means that we don't have to go through the approval process of a phase three trial and we can look to get licensing after the phase two B clinical trial. So our approach to repurpose drugs from a known condition like diabetes means that we know that they're safe, well tolerated and used in tens of thousands of people around the world. But now we found another indication, that being to treat raised intracranial pressure. So we're going to be able to move that through to patient benefit and through to market much more rapidly. Yeah, okay. so, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel on uh, safety aspects and uh, what have you. Yeah, that's right. We, we know the safety profile of this drug. Um, so it's going to mean that we can sort of shortcut and not have to go through all the safety and toxicity studies that you would do if you had an absolutely brand new drug. Yeah, okay. And Alex, you hail from the University of Birmingham, uh, which is where, uh, in, in effect, the uh, the work's been done on uh, the Exenatide program. Um, 
I'm just wondering how it all sort of started out. Yeah, that's right. So I work in the University of Birmingham. I work as a practicing um, medical neurology consultant where I look after the biggest cohort of patients with IIH in the world. So we have a, a really big clinical practice. And I also run a research group within the laboratory where we do animal in vivo work and we also do early phase clinical trials. And in fact, there's only ever been five randomized clinical control trials in this condition, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. And we've now run four of them out of Birmingham. So we've got a really good idea about running these trials, recruiting patients, troubleshooting, and, and getting through to our endpoint. So the way that the uh, the program with Exenatide began was a number of years ago now, and we've we've completed all of the early um, in vivo and in vitro work and showed a mechanism of action within the secretory tissues of the brain. So what we're trying to do is to reduce the amount of brain fluid production with this drug and hence reduce the brain pressure. And our work has now led us on to an early phase uh, clinical study, which we've now finished recruiting to. Yeah, okay, okay, great. And uh, it, it's called idiopathic, which uh, basically means that no, no one really quite knows a cause. Uh, is, that, uh, is that right? Well, we call it idiopathic intracranial hypertension because in the diagnostic steps for this condition, we do a brain scan and we find that they have no brain tumour or lesion within the brain. But actually, our knowledge of this condition is growing fairly rapidly and our research group has actually published earlier this year that we think that the fact that they are female and they are obese, these patients, has a really important implications for why the condition is caused. And we've now shown in a high-impact publication that the condition is probably driven by an abnormal hormone profile within these patients, and we're now taking that forward. So it may not always be called idiopathic, but certainly at the moment, that's the name, and we have a very clear diagnostic criteria for this condition. Okay, okay. Does it ever affect men, or is it it's exclusively a, a, a female disease? And as you say, it's younger females? Yeah, so it's 95% in obese young women, but very, very small percentage of the time it can occur in men, but that's much more unusual. And we think that that probably has a different underpinning um, biological cause. Right. Okay. Okay. And uh, I imagine it might often be misdiagnosed for other things. Um, for example, if it causes uh, uh, very bad headaches, uh, uh, headaches, of course, can, can result from other things. So uh, uh, I imagine the diagnosis might, might be a bit tricky at times. Um, that's actually not the case. We actually published last year the first international consensus guidelines for this condition, and we have very robust diagnostic criteria. So it's pretty straightforward. These patients will present with headaches to their emergency room, to their family doctor, or to the optician. And when they get examined, they found this very key finding at the back of the eye, which is called papilledema. This is swelling at the back of the eye. And that's an absolutely classic medical feature. The patients then go into the hospital and have a brain scan, which is um, which is normal, as I alluded to, there's no brain tumour, and then they have a lumbar puncture, which tells us what their brain pressure is, which will be high in this condition. So actually, it's very stepwise and very straightforward to get the right diagnosis. But it's at that point that then we have a difficulties as a physician because we don't have effective drugs available to treat the condition. Yeah, okay, okay. And on, on that note, uh, as you say, you've got uh, orphan indication status um, in the US and uh, with, with the EMA. Um Often, sort of uh, implies that it's uh, it, it, it's a very rare, rare disease, but but but, but how, how rare, rare is it? Yeah, no, that, yeah, that's an interesting term. But I guess what I could comment on is from our data. So our epidemiology studies that we've published within the last twelve months have shown that the incidence has grown quite rapidly. So it's grown by 350% over the last 10 years, and it very clearly is rising in line with the global epidemic of obesity. So whilst it is characterized as a rare disease and has orphan drug designation, it is rising rapidly because we have a global epidemic of obesity. 
And I would also add that these patients, although the incidence is still relatively low, it may be around six per 100,000 at present, the prevalence is very high. And that's because once patients get this condition, they have it for a very long time. So there's a very large pool of patients out there that are going to need ongoing chronic treatment. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. So, so it's very much linked with obesity and, and, and lifestyle. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Um, so six uh, out of, of 100,000, um, roughly how many sufferers are there? In, in, in other words, what, what's the addressable market like? The addressable market is, is growing, as Alex said, as it's related to obesity. Um, we, we don't actually know what the number of patients is, um, but we, we base this on a, on a kind of incidence rate and then doing a bottom-up calculation over a number of years um, you can get to a addressable market size of around about 800 million peak sales. Oh, okay, and that's the global figure. Yeah, that's well. That's for the the main um, five European markets in the US. So it, it's an estimate. Um, you don't have any other drugs approved in the space, so you can't look at another drug and say how much does that sell on an annual basis. Sure. Um, so we, you have to calculate the market size from a sort of bottom-up model. Right, okay. Um, so there are actually no other drugs out there or, or is it more the case there's no other effective drugs? Um, I, I, I'm just asking because I think in, in your material you, you, you refer to f- sort of four other drugs on market. Yeah, I mean, I can talk a bit about that. So we have other drugs which are in use for idiopathic intracranial hypertension, but they don't have a license and they're unapproved for this condition. And the trouble is that the the the, the research has shown that they actually have a, a poor efficacy. Many patients still deteriorate despite being on these drugs and can go blind and need further procedures such as neurosurgical procedures to save their vision. So for example, the most commonly used drug at the moment is acetazolamide, and that came out in 1954. And we've really not had anything else sort of supersede that in, in the, you know, in, in that duration of time. And the trouble that my patients find with acetazolamide is that not only is the efficacy very limited, but also the side effects are very high. So they feel nauseous, they sometimes vomit on this drug, they get tingling in their fingers and mouth, and they have a bad taste, and they can get depressed. So in our previous study that we ran, 48% of people actually came off this drug because they couldn't handle the side effects. So we really do need to bring something through. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you're interested uh, in in other disease indications as well. Uh, your your material mentions meningitis and uh, brain injury. So the drug that we're using, exenatide, is designed to reduce intracranial pressure per se. So it will work across a number of different indications. It's not targeting specifically the cause of idiopathic intracranial hypertension, and hence it could be applicable to a range of other disorders of raised intracranial pressure. So for example, yes, um, raised uh, brain pressure can occur in the setting of a traumatic brain injury. You can get raised brain pressure in the setting of a stroke. You can get raised brain pressure in the setting of meningitis. So these are all really key important areas that, again, lack effective drugs to help control intracranial pressure. So I very much look at IIH as our first indication, the tip of the iceberg. It's one of those areas that we're going to be able to move through into clinical trial um, quite quite readily. But in the future, we're going to be certainly looking to progress um, second and third indications, as I've mentioned. Yeah, okay, great. And in, in, in order to pursue those uh, uh, trials, uh, and this is uh, a, a question for Jason, uh, at the end of September, the company had uh, just over $11 million of, uh, of cash. Uh, is that uh, enough to uh, further the trials and make progress? So that, that cash should see the company well into 2021 on the current program. And I think we have a number of core goals 
for the coming year. Obviously, we want to complete the repurposing of exenatide uh, for neurological indications, um, particularly those with raised intracranial pressure. We have currently a phase two clinical study running uh, with Alex in Birmingham, and the goal is to complete that study and publish top-line data in the first quarter of 2020. Last patient of that study was recruited in November, so that study is actually ahead of uh, the original schedule. We're currently discussing with regulators, both FDA and EMA, for how we would go forward into a registration study in IIH. So the goal is to begin a registration study in 2020 for a repurposed exenatide in IIH. And then, as Alex mentioned, the, the drug is not focused particularly on IIH, but actually in addressing conditions of raised intracranial pressure. And so the goal will be in 2020 to initiate at least one and possibly two proof of concept studies in some of these other indications. Obviously, that's a big program. And we have a, a very sort of broad program ongoing. So I think in 2020, it's likely the company will raise additional capital but that will be on the back of hopefully positive clinical data from the phase two study. Yeah, okay, great. And Jason, who, whose uh, door would you knock on first in terms of the regulators, the, the, the FDA or the, uh, the European authorities? Well, I think um, both regulators have their own views and those views don't necessarily coincide. I think as our goal is to get the drug approved and onto the market in both uh, major geographies, the United States and Europe, will have to interact with both regulators uh, at the same time. And to look at the feedback that we get uh, in terms of trial design, approvable endpoints, etc. But given that this is an orphan indication, one of the real key advantages of that designation is that you have a more interactive dialogue with regulators because they're very keen to have the drug approved for these indications in their geographies. Yes, they're sort of there to help you rather than uh, hinder you. Exactly. And I think that's the experience of, of companies uh, in, in the orphan space in general. And I think that's extremely helpful in terms of designing the right study uh, to gain approval uh, in both US and Europe. Yeah, okay, great. And Jason, I'm curious why the company listed on the ASX, uh, given the, the technology float from the University of uh, Birmingham. So uh, yeah, what attracted you to the local bulls? Well, I think the Australian market is, is very good for raising uh, decent sums of capital, 10 to 20, 30 million. And I think there's uh, a number of uh, uh, capital raises this year, which have exceeded those sorts of numbers. So clearly, there is capital available. I think investors in the Australian market uh, like to see very innovative companies. They like to see companies that are uh, moving fast and, and have a, a sort of a, an appetite for risk to some degree. Um, sometimes you find uh, in Europe in particular that uh, that the markets can be quite conservative. And so I think it doesn't really matter where the, the company originates or where the science or the technology originates, but we find the Australian market extremely attractive uh, and, a, and a good market, uh, well-regulated and well-respected. So it's a good place for, for Invex. Yeah, I mean, it's often said that uh, Australian investors appreciate risk because uh, because of the uh, 
the the, the, the speculative mining sector uh, because yeah they're familiar with the with, with, with the explorers. Um, and um, speaking of that, I um, I noticed your register uh, includes uh, Mindaroo, which is uh, Andrew uh, Forrest's uh, uh, foundation, I think. Uh, did you uh, do you see a lot of him around the uh, the office? <laughs> no, not particularly. I mean, it's the it's the family office. I think of uh, of Andrew Forrest, so uh, he doesn't. I, you know, I, I don't visit the Mindaroo office particularly often, uh, but I think one of the things that is attractive to, to Mindaroo and, and also to other Australian investors, although they do have an appetite for risk, the business model that's being adopted by Invex is, is one of reducing risk by repurposing an existing drug. We're removing a lot of risk from the drug development process because we're not undertaking drug discovery. We're really focused on drug development and getting our drug to market as quickly as possible. And I think that's an attractive quality for people like Mindaroo as well as for uh, other investors in, in the Australian stock markets. Yes, yes. And, and, and speaking of such, uh, what, what repurposed drug would you most like to uh, emulate? Uh, Viagra was a, uh, was a pretty famous one, of course, which uh, did, did very well for Yeah, I think. I think, yeah, that's a, it's a good. It is it is an established business model, and I think it's been successful in in quite a number of cases. Um, you, you have many drugs that have been repurposed uh, for other indications. Um, what, you know, things like interferon alpha, uh, originally approved for hepatitis B and C. Uh, is now approved in a number of uh, oncology indications. Uh, one of the biggest drugs, rituximab, which was approved for rheumatoid arthritis, is also uh, now approved in a number of uh, oncology indications. Uh, you have things like cyclosporin, originally developed again for rheumatoid arthritis, focused on transplant rejection. Uh, bleomycin, uh, approved for a number of oncology indications and, and repurposed for pleural effusion. So, you know, we're, we're not pioneers in terms of this business model. It's, it's a well-trodden, established and successful path to develop a business like Invex. Yeah, sure. So there's uh, plenty of precedents for what you're um, uh, see seeking to do. Um, okay. And uh, Alex, uh, sort of finally, um, I noticed you had a visit uh, from uh, uh, some, some NASA medicos uh, in the context of your University of Birmingham uh, work. Um, so uh, I was just interested in what, what you're able to tell them or, or advise them. Yeah, that's right. So they're also very interested in um, raised intracranial pressure. So they are looking for a countermeasure to help them combat raised intracranial pressure that occurs in their astronauts after prolonged space flight. So essentially, the astronauts that are up on the International Space Station after three months develop raised brain pressure. And with that, 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 that finding at the back of the eye, the papal edema, and then the potential risk to lose vision. So as the NASA space program looks further afield and wants to do missions to Mars and beyond, which would take at least nine months there, 18 months circling and nine months back, they're going to have this problem of raising to cranial pressure becoming more and more of an issue. So they, they have approached us because they're interested in this drug discovery with the exenatide work that we're doing because of the ability of the drug to reduce intracranial pressure. So we're in ongoing discussions with them for how we might be able to facilitate some of uh, our uh, human space travel to uh, beyond the moon and out to Mars. Yeah, well, uh, hopefully when they do make it to Mars, they'll go, they'll <laughs> go with a very good stock of uh, exenatide. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> now, um, yeah, that's great. I, I know a lot more about uh, Invex and uh, idiopathic intracranial hypertension uh, that, than I did uh, 20 minutes ago, and I think I even know how to uh, uh, say it. So um, I, uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, great to chat, and uh, good, good luck with the program. Thanks very much, Tim. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you.